Welcome back to another episode of Our Maryland's Politics and Policy Podcast. I'm your host, Brittany. We're back in Annapolis once again to catch up on some of the newest legislative proposals in the General Assembly. Perhaps most importantly, we want to hear about the budget proposal that Governor Hogan has put forth and learn more about the potential implications of his budget for Marylanders in the coming year. To do so, we sat down with Vice Chair of the Budget and Taxation Committee, Senator Richard Madalino. Senator Madalino has served as Vice Chair of the Committee since 2015, and as he has in the past, he will continue to play an important role in the debate and passage of this year's budget. We're glad to have the opportunity to gain deeper insights not only into the budget, but into other upcoming legislative issues as well. Um, so just first and foremost, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Um, so actually, you serve as the vice chair of the Budget and Taxation Committee, which is a particularly important role uh, when, the, when discussing funding priorities for the upcoming fiscal year as the Assembly is doing right now. Mm-hmm. So could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the current debate over Governor Hogan's budget proposal and what's at stake for Marylanders? Sure. Well, first off, the, the budget is the central document of the year of I mean, the budget is where a government establishes all of its priorities. Absolutely. I mean, the, we can pass lots and lots of laws, and they're just words on a piece of paper, unless there's money behind them to enforce them, to carry them out. And so obviously the budget is a moral document as it outlines the, the priorities. Right now we're trying to figure out what has the governor proposed? Where are we going when it comes to public education, to public safety, to healthcare, so how are we dealing with all of these changes that are coming from the Republicans who control the White House and Capitol Hill? What are they doing about healthcare? How does that flow down through our budget, through both the these, the the money we put out to provide healthcare to to the poor, to the elderly, or to young people? How does it impact the healthcare costs that we have to provide to our employees as an employer? So it's working through all of those issues right now and trying to figure out exactly what the governor is proposing and what it means for the next fiscal year and what it means for beyond. You know, one of the things that's very interesting about the budget, and I, I often think that many Marylanders are not aware of the limitations that apply in our state that don't apply to any other legislature around the country. Um, our governor has by far the most extreme executive budgetary powers. Our governor gets to propose a budget. All we can do as a legislature is make line item reductions in it. Right. We can't move money around. We can't increase uh, a line item unless the governor puts additional money in through in Annapolis lingo, something called a supplemental budget. In essence, our governor has the power to amend his proposal in real time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unlike any other piece of legislation, if he wanted to offer an amendment, that would have to be voted on. And this, he gets to more or less provide an amendment in that rewrites the bill as is. So um, it is an extremely powerful executive budget. Which is why you hear a lot of conversations around Annapolis around mandates, because the one tool that we have is the tool to mandate through law certain appropriations. And so, for example, almost all of the education funding for the state is tied up in a series of formulas that are mandated in law. You run the formula, that results in a dollar amount, and that 
the governor, any governor, is then required to put that amount of money in the budget. Right. And then when he or she is interested in making a change in a mandated appropriation, that governor has to submit a additional piece of legislation, which is often called the Budget Reconciliation and Financing Act. Mm -hmm. You may occasionally hear people in Annapolis call it the BRFA. <laughs> um, and then that is the, the separate bill that goes through that tries to amend mandated appropriations. And the governor this year has submitted a Budget Reconciliation and Financing Act, which does seek to make a series of changes to mandates that are in the law to then reduce the amount of money that is in the budget. Sure. So we are looking at those things as well. And I know that you said that um, obviously this proposal is still fairly new and you're all still figuring mm -hmm. out exactly what it entails. Have you identified anything that's particularly contentious at this point or at this stage in your deliberations? Well, there are some broad proposals the governor has made and then there are some very specific ones. Sure. For example, um, Several years ago, the legislature, when we took up the increase in the minimum wage in Maryland from 725 to 1010, mm -hmm. and we are, all, we are scheduled to hit $10.10 .10 an hour as a minimum wage in Maryland by July 1st of this year, um, we put in a provision to provide an additional um, amount of money to nonprofit agencies that provide services to people with developmental disabilities. So, uh, you know, people who are living with a, a physical and or um, intellectual disability, mm -hmm. um, that they need additional assistance and that sometimes that requires a caregiver to help them with their daily routines, that um, we want to make sure that those caregiver positions um, get paid more than the minimum wage because these can be often difficult jobs. Um, for the individual, it's good to have the stability of someone that they're consistently working with. Mm -hmm. And if you can get paid more, the same, or potentially even more by working a cash register at a fast food place <laughs> than actually helping someone with their day-to-day -day routine of getting dressed, and that, that it might be easier to take that other minimum wage job than stick with your, your, your caregiving position. So we put in that provision to make sure that their reimbursement rate from the state grows in line with the minimum wage. Yeah, sure. So that, that pay differential, so that they could pay a little bit more than the minimum wage. Right. The governor, this year, it was supposed to get to 3.5, that pay, that the differential rate was, man, was, was to give them a mandated 3.5% increase. The governor has reduced that to 1%. That's very contentious right. because, A, it's something we had agreed to. He has repeatedly tried to undo it. We have repeatedly not gone along with it. And it's like, yet again, he is, he is proposing this. Right. So that is very um, nerve-wracking for especially the families of people with disabilities, since they obviously are worried that they're the caregiver they depend upon might leave. So um, that is something that is very contentious, that is very specific. Broadly speaking, the governor ha once again wants the authority to limit all mandates. So he wants this broad authority to cut money 
from a whole range of programs. And um, Governor Hogan in particular has focused on this concept of mandates. The public should understand when he is talking about mandates, he's talking about funding for education, funding for health care. That's what mandates are. Right. And he often complains and is usually as usual, puts in a great degree of, of hyperbole in his complaints that, you know, oh, 80% of the budget is mandated and that's outrageous. Well, yes, a high percentage of the budget is mandated because the voters have agreed to a lockbox on transportation funds. So transportation revenues are dedicated, mandated, only to go to transportation. Right. When the federal government gives you money, and we get billions of dollars a year in assistance from the federal government. That is all mandated to a specific purpose. So when you get money for medical assistance, Medicaid from the federal government, you can only spend it on Medicaid. Right. That's a mandate. All tuition revenue from the state, from college students in the state, all flow through the state budgets. So they get, they are technically within our bottom line but they're all mandated to go to the to the institution that the student is attending. Sure. No one would think anything otherwise. That that that's a mandate, of of course. Right. So when you hear him talk about you know how how his hands are tied and that you know this is a problem that we have in the state, you got to peel that back and say, well, of course I. If I'm paying tuition mm -hmm. for my child to go to Salisbury, I'm expecting that money to show up at Salisbury and not be used for something else. So, you know, the Hogan hype machine, which constantly is trying to berate, I think, the hardworking people who, of the state government, his colleagues in the legislature, <laughs> you, 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 have to, you have to understand that it's, it's not really fact, but often just typical Republican um, hyperbole. Sure. Um, and actually, I kind of want to circle back to something you mentioned. You mentioned um, the minimum wage issue. Mm -hmm. um, it's very complex. There's a number of issues that accompany mm -hmm. that. Um, but you've actually been a vocal advocate for mm -hmm. the Fight for 15, which is a movement to raise Maryland's statewide minimum wage to $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. um, what, if anything, can Marylanders expect to see on that issue during in the General Assembly this session? Well, um, I have a piece of legislation in that would raise the minimum wage to $15 over the next several years. It doesn't just jump us in one sure. year. It phases in over a number of years with a few safeguards should the economy unexpectedly slow. There's a mechanism for a pause to occur in the, in the phase up of the minimum wage. Very much in line with proposals that have been passed in other states across the country and the District of Columbia, for example and in Maryland, in Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, there's a the similar, the same bill is in, in the House right now. It's Senate Bill 543, um, House Bill 664, which would take us up to $15 a minimum wage, uh, $15 an hour for a minimum wage. I think you're gonna see a very, very active effort to get that bill passed and um, to the governor, and hopefully the governor will, will embrace it and sign it. Now, right now, one of the major challenges facing our state, facing our country, is the growing income divide. Right. You know, a lot, a lot. I, you know, I've heard numbers, 80%, 90% of the economic gain, the wealth increase in this country has gone to 
the, the people at the very top. And this is an effort to make sure that everyone gets to enjoy some of the wage growth, the economic growth that has occurred in the country. And certainly by lifting the minimum wage, you put pressure on wages going up across the board, which helps make sure everyone gets to enjoy the, the growth that is occurring. Right. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on both that House and Senate bill to see how those are progressing. Yeah. Um, but also speaking of legislation that you proposed, um, kind of backtracking a little bit, there have been a number of, um, again to use that word to say the least, contentious um, appointments mm -hmm. that Governor Hogan has made. Um, and there's been specific controversy surrounding some appointments he's made to the Handgun Permit Review Board. Um, and you actually introduced a bill last session that would change the way handgun permits are reviewed, which we hear may come up again this session. Yep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what we can expect to see and what's included in your proposal? Sure. I don't think um, there has been an administration that has politicized the nominating process as much as the Hogan administration. Now, it should maybe come as no surprise because Governor Hogan, in his long political career in Maryland, did serve as the appointment secretary for Governor Ehrlich. So he was the person who spent four years um, appointing, helping to identify people to appoint not only to all the cabinet positions, but to the many boards and commissions, judicial offices. And, um, so he has quite a, quite a personal history on, on appointments. On this one board in particular, the Handgun Permit Review Board, it's the group of five citizens who are supposed to review the appeals that um, any person seeking a concealed carry permit um, can, uh, who has gone to the state police and received a determination that they are that the the state police don't believe they should have a permit, they can appeal that decision to this citizen review board. The governor has appointed. People I would describe as Second Amendment gun radicals, people who believe you should have a gun for whatever purpose you want. Mm -hmm. um, as the, these appeals were going forward, it was clear this board was giving people their permits if they had any, any reason. I'm worried about ISIS. Okay, you can have, you can have a permit. I'm, um, you know, if the state police have gone through and determined that you don't need it, um, that there's some other disqualification, why? I mean, to me, it's you're undermining this whole process if you're just granting all of the appeals. Sure. We should have a process that has specificity to it, that gives people the some guidelines as to who can get uh, a, a, a license and and who can't, and you know, one that takes into consideration the decision making of the state, of the state police in making these reviews. So, um, especially considering the legislature has already made the underlying policy decision of of trying to carefully limit concealed carry permits because of their risk to um, public safety. Um, we will be putting in that bill again, hopefully discussing it. I, you know, I do think there is a, a better appeals process. We already have something called the Office of Administrative 
appeals that, that deal with all those other decisions that lots of other state agencies make, we should follow the same process for this board. Now, the governor has repeatedly appointed people to this board when we have questioned them. He has withdrawn those names, depriving us of the opportunity to have any comment, mm -hmm. and then reappoints and then appoints other people and has therefore, I think, willfully neglected um, the the confirmation process that is built into our constitution, mm -hmm. like he has with other positions. You know, we we have this interesting process where um, a governor has to submit names by the beginning of session. And if we don't take action by the end of session, those those all of those people are technically rejected. Mm -hmm. um, what the governor is doing is he submits names, withdraws the names, and then reappoints the people right after session. <laughs> and I mean that I think that violates the spirit of the confirmation process, right. the legislative oversight. Right. You know, maybe he has found a loophole, but that should be very disturbing to the public that a a governor is so willfully violating what is a norm of our constitutional system. But, I mean, to me, it's clear whether in, in Washington or here in Maryland, Republicans don't care about longstanding norms of behavior if it gets in the way of their policy objectives. You know, making sure that you keep the National Rifle Association happy is a long-term policy objective of the of the Republican Party, so if this is you know if if that means violating what we have thought were decades, if not longer, um, traditions of how the executive and legislative branches work together on things like the confirmation process, then so be it. Because you got to keep your your um, friends in the NRA happy. And I would point out. You know, in, in the last election, um, the governor, who uh, would not release his answers to the National Rifle Association questionnaire um, to the public, although apparently it was at some point leaked to the Washington Post, he did promise the NRA that he would seek to use his powers to undermine our, our law without ever seeking to change the law, recognizing that, broadly speaking, the public supports our, our sensible gun violence prevention laws. Um, the NRA and their, their radical base don't, and so the governor is seeking to, Governor Hogan is seeking to satisfy them in the shadows by undermining our law through things like a citizen review board that then now meets in private, does not disclose its decisions, its rationale for decisions, but is potentially giving, because we don't know, because they don't let anyone right. <laughs> into their meetings, right. giving permits to whomever wants one. Right.
Yeah, no, you make a lot of really great points, um, and you know, you bring up a really great point about the the spirit of the constitutionality of the the appointment process. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on um, you bringing that bill up again in this session. Um, I know that we've talked about a number of things, but there are so many issues um, at stake in this session. So is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with just as a parting note that they should be um, looking out for, paying attention to in the upcoming months? Well, I think there are three central issues. One, um, there is a state commission that is meeting right now looking at um, the future of education, public education in our state. The Kerwin Commission. The Kerwin Commission, because Britt Kerwin is the the former chancellor of the university system, um, is the chairman of the commission, so it euphemistically goes by the Kerwin Commission. Um, Its technical name is the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education. Doesn't quite roll off. Yes, that's true, but that's what we're looking at, innovation and excellence. How can we have the best school system in the world? The preliminary report is coming out. The legislature will be taking some first steps at that. But over the next year, having that conversation about where our public schools go, what are the policies that will get us not to the top system in the country, but amongst the best in the world, because our young people need to have an education that allows them to keep compete with the best in the world, not just the best in the country, because this is a global economy. So... Um, how we get there, what it's going to cost, what changes will be needed. To me, that is a central issue that will help shape Maryland for another generation or longer. Um, Maryland is a knowledge-based economy. What is special about Maryland, what is unique in our competitive edge, is the skills of our workforce. Mm -hmm. We have, in this country, almost unparalleled skills. We have amongst the highest percentage of adults with bachelor's degrees, with advanced degrees. It's what makes us a special place to live and work and do business. We have to keep that up through this type of investment. Having this discussion about where we go, do we continue to to improve or do we start to slide? That's a central issue for discussion that starts now, this year, and we'll proceed through the next year and hopefully through the, the, the future. So education, second, health care. The Republicans in control of Congress, the Trump administration are seeking to undermine the Affordable Care Act. What happens in Maryland as a result of that? We embraced the Affordable Care Act, integrated many of its provisions, all of its provisions into Maryland law. And the, the, final, the final thing right. is the impact of the Republican tax scam um, that was passed uh, a few weeks ago and signed by President Trump, what that does to Maryland, what that does to individual Maryland taxpayers in the short term, in the long term, what it does to our economy because of the impact on the federal government and the fact that, as you know, Maryland has... A lot of people who work for the federal government, work for contractors for the federal government, how federal spending changes as a result of a new fiscal reality will have an impact on our economy that goes beyond that of many other states. So education, health care, and then the implications of the federal tax bill will all be central issues for the, the rest of this session and I think moving forward. You know, the, the Republicans drafted that bill in secret had no bill hearings. We're still trying to figure out what some of the implications are. Amendments were offered in writing, handwriting yeah. changes on the floor in the on a, on the fly. 
who knows what comma was left out, what semicolon was put in the wrong place, which opens up a loophole that could have billions of dollars of impact. I mean, we have to figure these things out and there's been almost no opportunity at the federal level. So trying to figure out what it means for us will be a challenge for us during the next few weeks. And then moving forward from a policy standpoint, we will be having a lot of conversations about what that does to our fiscal policy. Sure. You know, right now, because of the, the different changes in the, the federal law, it means more revenue for the state, for example, because the way that the restructured federal taxes, um, by reducing deductions but reducing rates, now there's actually the potential that for especially upper income Marylanders, more income is now exposed to the state income tax. Mm -hmm. The governor is going to propose making sure every person in Maryland gets the full extent of their Trump tax cut. Well, really, do we, when, when someone, when people over a million dollars in Maryland, people whose income is over a million dollars, stand to have a $50,000 a year tax cut from the federal government? But their state tax bill is going to go up by fifteen thousand, so they're still getting a thirty-five thousand dollar tax cut. We have to make sure. Oh no, no, no! They need all fifty thousand of their of their tax cut when the federal action is going to to reduce our ability to fund education, fund health care, keep the civil society we have going. Do we have to jump on board the Trump bandwagon? I mean, I know that's what Larry Hogan would like to do, but I don't think that's what the people of Maryland want us to do. So we're going to have that conversation too. So I think those are three things that people have to look out for and listen carefully to understand who's trying to move our state forward, who's trying to make sure we have broad-based success in the state, and who's trying to look out for the top 1%, which are the you know, form the core of the billionaire backers of the Republican Party. Sure. No, I think all three of those are really important. Um, and just again, thank you so much. I know this is an incredibly busy time of session, but thank you so much for taking the My time pleasure. Thanks so much for listening and join us again next week for more from Our Maryland's Politics and Policy podcast. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or on our website at www.ourmaryland.us for the most up-to-date news and information. 